Well, I was raised in a Protestant home in which religion had a specific place. It was uh, important to us as an historical relic of the past that we honored as a part of our heritage, but it had no real practical purpose or value in human life beyond that. Religion was much like these things that I put on the table in front of you here. These were things that belonged to my grandfather Llewellyn. They were given to him. It's written on the bottom of the shaving cup on December 25th, 1911, just a few weeks after his 17th birthday. And this shaving cup and brush and and a razor are important to me in a personal sense. And I display them in my home. They're, they're important because they represent something about my past. But the truth is they have no real living significance or value. I couldn't sell them on eBay for very much. And none of my grandchildren are going to go to college because of that. But when I was in college, I came to believe that Jesus Christ was a living Savior, risen from the dead and capable of invading people's lives today. And I remember when I shared that with my grandfather in his old age when I was 19 years old. I'll never forget what he said because in many ways his words have shaped the direction that my life has taken. What he said to me was, Tommy, why does it matter if Jesus actually rose from the dead? What if he just rose in those people's hearts who felt the power of his teaching? Now, at the time, I thought it was just kind of a silly thing to say, but later I came to realize how widespread that belief was in my grandfather's generation. It happened that, though hardly anyone knows today, in the early 1900s, there was a storm in the Christian churches that split them into two camps. It was called the modernist fundamentalist controversy. And many pastors and teachers and church leaders who were modernists, in fact, the majority, uh, believed that in order to be acceptable to a modern age, Christianity was going to have to adapt to the modern world. And in the modern world, we know that miracles do not happen. Science explains all the mysteries of life and Human contentment and happiness is the chief concern of people. And in such a world like that, the doctrines of Christianity need to adjust to what people need and what they want. And one of the main things you have to do away with is the resurrection of Christ. Because if there's anything we've all known since the Enlightenment in the 1700s, we can only really know what's verified by science and our senses. And as I As I knew a year later, when I stood at the casket of my grandfather, dead people stay dead. They don't come back to life. Now, in his generation, there were people, it happens, who had a sentimental attachment, like my grandfather, to Jesus, a sentimental attachment to the Christian religion and things that they thought were important and ought to be kept. And those kind of people went in two different directions in the way that they thought and the things that they said. If they were full-fledged materialists, like my grandfather, who believed that there's nothing outside of what we can verify with our five senses, then they, they, they would say something like, he rose in their hearts, 
His teachings became important to them. He didn't really rise from the dead, but that wouldn't matter. They still found his teachings important, and we can today too, especially those teachings that fit in with our modern ideas about life. If, on the other hand, they weren't full-fledged materialists, they believed that there's something beyond the material that goes on, some soul or spirit, immaterial part of a person, they suggested that Jesus was such an important person that when he died, because of his intense godliness, God took him immediately to heaven. He didn't really rise from the dead. He went directly to heaven when he died. Now, that's not what the Bible means by resurrection, you understand. In fact, it's not even an idea that Jewish people in the first century would have even thought about. But it was asserted by people who believe, well, there's some kind of afterlife out there. And it means that for us, we can still find his teachings important, especially those teachings that we find to be compatible with what we think today. Now, the truth is, it's almost 50 years Almost 50 years has passed since that conversation I had with my grandfather. And it's evident that those who held such ideas are now an exceedingly tiny number. There's no controversy today about these things. People aren't writing books that are uh, being reviewed in the front page of newspapers anymore. And the reason is that those who descended from my grandfather's generation realized rather quickly that such a Jesus would not make any difference in the modern world. Such a Jesus has no power. He may have taught some good things, but you don't need the teacher if you have his teachings. They didn't hold the same sentimental attachment to Jesus and the Christian religion, and so they didn't look for it. So this morning I want to ask, what does this word resurrection really mean? What does it claim about Jesus? Why would it make any difference to a person today in 2018? I want to draw your attention to this passage that was read to us just a few moments ago. If you'll turn to it again, please. I'm not the kind of preacher who likes to hear a passage read and then goes off and talks about whatever he wants to, you know, for the week. I want to draw your attention to what these words say. Now, the book of Romans happens to be the first of the letters of the New Testament, And uh, it is the magnum opus, the great work that the Apostle Paul produced. It's not put first in Paul's letters, which follow because of how important it is. It was put first because it's the longest, and his letters were arranged from longest to shortest. But this one starts with an opening paragraph. And it happens that this opening paragraph in Greek, in which he wrote, is one long run-on sentence. And if you look carefully at the version that you might pick up on a chair around you, it actually translates it as one long run-on sentence. We don't do that often today. We like short sentences in our English language, so usually it's broken down. But the problem with a run-on sentence is a little hard to understand the structure, but let me just note two quick things about it. One is the purpose of this paragraph is quite clear if you look at the beginning and the end. It says, Paul described him then. And then in verse 7, to all those in Rome, all that you have, whatever is in between those two, is a greeting. It's the beginning of the letter. He's writing to a specific group of people. And then when you look at it, it says, Paul uh, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And then it says, this gospel is concerning his son, verse 3, who was two things. First, verse 3, he was descended from David according to the flesh. 
And the second is, he was declared to be the son of God with power, verse 4, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Those are the two things that his gospel is concerning. The first one would be appropriate if this were Christmas, to talk about his descent from David and the significance of that. But the second one, since this is Easter, it's just those words in verse 4 that I want to draw your attention to for the next few minutes. He was declared to be the son of God in power. Now, um, this morning for a few minutes, I, I want to ask, what does that mean? I want to focus on that second element of the gospel, declared to be the son of God in power. Why did he say that? What does it mean? What difference does it make? Now, what it says clearly is that Jesus' resurrection was, it qualified, I guess you'd say, it qualified him to be declared, to be designated, to be openly acknowledged as the Son of God. And um, Son of God is a well-known title of Jesus. Actually, the most well-known title of Jesus is Christ. But most people think that's his last name today. Actually, when you read it in the Bible, it means Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, to use the Jewish Hebrew word. But um, the second most common title given to Jesus is Son of God. If you ever... um, talk with Muslims, the one thing they will tell you, if they know anything about Islam, they will tell you this, God cannot have a son. They are sure of that one thing, and that's what makes Christianity wrong in their eyes. God cannot have a son. And yet, this tells us that from the beginning, at his resurrection, and because of it, what Christians went out and they proclaimed was that Jesus had been designated declared openly, publicly, the Son of God by his resurrection. So what does that mean? Declared the Son of God in power. Now, we could come up with our own ideas, I suppose, but it's probably best to start by thinking, what would anyone have thought who read the Apostle Paul's words in the Roman Empire in the first century, 50 AD or so, 55? what, what, What did they think when they heard the word Son of God? Well, it happens that there were two cultures in the Roman Empire, two vast thought worlds of meaning in Jesus' day. They were the Jewish world and the Roman world. They were very different in the way they approached life, thought about life. The Jewish world was made up of the concepts that are in the Old Testament, as we call it, or the Hebrew Bible, as the Jewish people call it. And the Roman world, was uh, their culture was built on the concepts of Greek philosophy, And in both of these systems, the word son of God had very distinct ideas. In the Jewish thought world, son of God had two interlocking meanings. It it first referred to Israel as the people of God, and then it referred to the king of Israel and later the Messiah, ultimately, as the representative of the kingdom of God. Put that on one side. Israel and the Messiah is what the son of God referred to. And on the other side, you can put the Roman world, and they also had two meanings. One is probably not as important for our purposes, but Son of God, as most of us would know if we ever had to study Greek mythology in eighth grade or whatever, is that it could refer to one of the many heroes or demigods in the family of gods in the Roman Empire. So you had Zeus and, and, and his wife and, and all these different gods there, but periodically one of them would um, have relations with a mortal human being and produce a person like Hercules, by the way. Hercules in the story was the offspring of a mortal woman and Zeus, and and, uh, he was called a son of God. 
But probably more importantly for the purposes here is it had a political meaning that was very distinct, particularly at the time when Jesus uh, was born and his life and his death. And it was that the emperor in the Roman Empire could be called a son of God. This started with Augustus Caesar, and it started in a specific way. Augustus had his predecessor, Julius Caesar, named as a god, according to the Roman Senate. They declared him to be a god, and from that point afterwards, he called himself the son of God. And it happened that every succeeding emperor in the Roman Empire did the same thing. They had their predecessor declared a god, part of the whole group of gods up there, and as a result, they could be called the son of God. They stamped that on their coins. So as the early Christians went out into both Jewish and Roman society, they proclaimed Jesus as the Son of God, declared to be the Son of God in power. Now, what happens in the New Testament is that this takes on three distinct meanings. One comes from the Jewish Old Testament world. One from, comes from the Roman Greek world. And one, as we'll see, that uniquely developed among Christians themselves based on the person of Jesus. And let me suggest that these three meanings explain to us how we should understand Jesus and why he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to his resurrection. Now, first, it might surprise you to know that early on in the history of Israel, when you read the Bible, you find that God calls the people of Israel his son. So he instructs Moses when he sends Moses to go to Pharaoh and bring the people out of Israel. This is what God says to Moses. He's supposed to say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So then later in their history, God says through the prophet Isaiah, referring to that event way back in their history, he says, out of Egypt I called my son. So Israel in the Old Testament, that is the descendants of Abraham, specifically through Jacob, who was renamed Israel by God, the sons of Israel or descendants of Israel, they were called God's son. And God treated them the way a father treats his unique beloved child. He guided them and guarded them and gave to them principles to live by and so forth. But Israel, as we read the Old Testament, was not an easy child to raise. Uh, they often rebelled. So an image developed in their history in a specific way. What happened was, as they kept rebelling and God would either discipline them or be gracious with them, God raised up an individual who was named the king of this people. And that individual was David. And David began to be called the son of God. And the reason was that he represented the whole people of God. So in his youth, David represented the whole nation when he went out and he fought with Goliath. They were holding back in fear of the Philistines. David went forward. He defeated Goliath in battle. And his victory was a victory for the whole nation. In other words, the king represented the nation and was the son of God in a unique sense. And then what happened is David's descendants proved to be sometimes faithful, sometimes unfaithful. They weren't always this representative person they ought to be. And the promise came first to David and then developed that there was going to be one king in that line who would arise, who would be completely faithful, and he would be the Messiah. Now, the word Messiah simply means anointed one. And uh, that title was referring to this individual king, a descendant of David, 
who was going to represent the whole nation. And, and all that's saying is that the Son of God, by the time that Jesus came, had come to refer to this representative person that was going to come. He was going to represent the people of God. He was, uh, when we says here, declared Son of God in power, it means he was acknowledged by God. And subsequently by God's preachers, like the Apostle Paul, to be the promised Messiah. That's the first meaning of the word. He was the Messiah, the deliverer of the people of God. Now, we need one who will do this, one who will represent us. The fact is, Israel, as we read about them in the Old Testament, Israel was unfaithful to God. And that unfaithfulness is simply an indication of what is true of all people. That is, Israel stood in a special relationship with God. They were given unique privileges and benefits and rules. And when they were unfaithful, certainly, if that was true of them with all of their blessings and all their privileges, then those of us who are outside of physical descent from Abraham, who didn't have that covenant and those blessings, certainly we wouldn't be in any different shape. And that's why the prophet Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is on the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. That's the first idea that people would have understood when they heard that Jesus was the Son of God. This is the Messiah, the representative, the substitute for sinful people. And what was it, the passage tells us, that qualified him to be declared the Son of God in the sense of being the representative, the one who would represent the people of God? Well, he was qualified by his resurrection. He was declared to be Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, his resurrection was the stamp of approval by God the Father, the proof positive that this one was the Messiah, the representative of God's people. That idea came directly from the Old Testament. The second one came about as a common response to the meaning of the word Son of God in the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus. Now, as I mentioned, just about a generation before Jesus was born, Julius Caesar came to power. You may or may not know anything about this, but he came to power and changed Rome, which had been around for several hundred years, from being a republic represented by a senate to an empire with one autocratic leader at the head, although he didn't fully implement that and he died a sudden death at the hands of of some of his co-leaders. But what happened is his nephew, whose name was Octavius, came to the throne and consolidated power and really became known as the first of the Caesars, the first emperor. He uh, had Julius declared a god, and like I said, and uh, from that point forward, he began to call himself son of God. He took the title Augustus, and Augustus Caesar ruled for over 40 years. And um, in fact, he was the one who was alive when Jesus was born and during Jesus' childhood. All of the following rulers of Rome did the same thing. They declared their predecessor to be a god, and then they called themselves son of God, and they stamped on the coins that they always put out in their reign that had a picture of their head over at the words Fili, or divi filii, which means son of God. So in direct confrontation with the government of Rome, 
the Christians began to use this title. Now, they didn't choose the title in order to stick it in the eye of Rome. They chose the title because it came from the Old Testament. But it happened that at the point in time when Christianity came into being, as they declared Jesus was the Son of God in power, they were, um, with little question, clearly saying that they meant to stand in stark contrast to the political power of their day, the prevailing attitudes of their day and their society. The underlying reasoning for this was that in Jewish thought, out of which they grew, the early Christians knew that the Messiah was not only the one who would represent the world, excuse me, represent um, the people of God, but he was the world's true Lord, the true ruler of the world would be the Messiah. To them, when they said son of God, they not only knew that he would represent the people of God, but Psalm 2 and many other places told them that he was the world's rightful king whose reign would extend to the very ends of the earth. Caesar, whichever one was on the throne at that point, first Augustus and then his son Tiberius, who was ruling when Jesus died, called himself Lord of Lords. But... um, Christians knew that title only properly belonged to Jesus Christ. Here's what a modern interpreter has said. Listen carefully to describe what impact this title had in that society. Calling Jesus son of God within this wider circle of meaning constituted a refusal to retreat, a determination to keep Christian discipleship from turning into a private cult, a sect, a mystery religion. It launched a claim on the world, a claim that was at once um, absurd, like a tiny group of nobodies taking a pot shot at the might of Rome and claiming Caesar's not the real king, ours is. And at the same time, it was very serious. It was so serious that within a couple of generations, the might of Rome was trying and failing to stamp it out. Christians refused to relinquish to the world, excuse me, relinquish the world to the principalities and powers, but claimed even those principalities and powers for allegiance to the Messiah, who was and is now the world's true Lord. That's what this phrase meant. Declared the Son of God in power means for those of us who acknowledge Jesus Christ, not only as Messiah, but as Lord, because he is Son of God, we are saying that we are like a collection of rebel cells within the political systems of this world. We're loyal to a different king. We listen to a different set of teachings. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because we not only need one to represent us before God, but we need one who will guide us, lead us through this barren world in which we find ourselves. I mean, think about it. These are difficult times in which to live. And the more I read and the more I think, the more difficult I feel that our generation is. And and during these difficult times, we hear two voices speaking to us. They're like siren calls enticing us to follow them. And one of them, on one hand, I think the largest at this point, is made up of those who believe in the inevitable progress of this world. They are crying out that there's utopia right around the corner for us if we will just allow ourselves 
to get free from subjection to religion and to authority outside ourselves. If we'll do that, we'll find a world of personal freedom to do and to be what we want unhindered by anyone who thinks that there's some eternal values or powers that we need to observe. That's on one hand, what we're hearing every day on the radio and the television and podcasts and whatever it is we listen to or read. And on the other hand, there are those, a much smaller number, but those who are saying we need to return to traditional values. And by that they mean there's something in the past that we need to not let go. The good old days of the past will return. If we'll only return to the practices of past generations, then we'll find the utopia and all of the peace and prosperity and wealth that we want. If we'll do that, those are the two ways. But I have to tell you, the resurrection of Christ tells us there's something different from both of those that cuts away between them. The resurrection of Christ has designated Jesus as this world's true Lord. All others are only seeking to establish their own little kingdoms. And progress, real progress, can only be made in submission to Christ. And and make no, no misunderstanding about this. The past was no better than the present. The Bible doesn't know a golden age in the past, except one. The one to which the human heart longs to return. The Bible knows only one golden age, ever so brief. It's recorded in the first two chapters of Genesis before sin entered the world. That's the only golden age. Every period past that has only been varying degrees of the manifestation of sin in this world. And so the lordship of Christ calls us to a completely different way of thinking and living. And the truth is we need a Lord who will guide us through this barren world in which we find ourselves. Those are the first two meanings, Messiah and Lord. That's what the words Son of God mean. That's how the Jewish people and the Roman people would have understood it. There's a third meaning. I want to draw your attention. This title, Son of God, this one happened only as the early Christians uh, applied to Jesus the thought, the reflection on things that he had said and done over a period of time. And they acknowledged that he was, in fact, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. He was the world's true Lord in distinction from Caesar or whoever else was in power. This third one was a title that had to do with God himself. This one is not taken either from the Jews or from the Romans. What happened is, as they reflected on Jesus and they read the Old Testament, they noted that God said in the Old Testament he himself would save his people. It would not be that he would use armies and other people, political factors or whatever, to bring about salvation. He was going to, with his own arm, he says in the prophets, save his people. It would be the work of God himself. So what did the resurrection say about that? It meant that when Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus Christ had accomplished the very thing the covenant God of Israel had promised to do by his own power, by his own arm, by his own hand. He had brought redemption. And as they reflected on this, they realized this can only mean that Jesus, as son of God, was God himself in the flesh. They began to use a title that turned the words around to describe him. He was not only the Son of God, Jesus was God the Son. And and they took those words from Jesus himself. I mean, after all, the last words of Jesus, 
the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. What it did is it put those three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, together on the divine side of the equation of salvation. And they realized that Jesus was not simply the messenger of God, like a person so godly that God took him to heaven when he died. Jesus was the very embodiment of God himself, his love and his grace. In Jesus, God spoke personally, loudly, and clearly. And the fact is, we need such a God. We need one who represents us as the Messiah. We need one who leads us as Lord, but mostly we need the God who personally redeems us by his power. And that's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he he pictures there a, a world of lost sinners, a vast number made up of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, people drawn from all of the world who are all redeemed by the work of God in Christ. Son of God means that he is able to redeem all those who will come to him through faith and trust in him. And what is it we are to trust? Well, we trust this very thing. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He is Messiah and Lord and God. Now, let's just ask finally, in that sentence, he was declared to be the Son of God in power. Why does it use the words in power? I mean, it seems like it wasn't necessary. If you stop to think about it, he could have just said he was declared to be the Son of God. Those three things. But I think there's a reason why he was declared the son of God in power. Those words were necessary to add. Think about it this way. When you read about Jesus in the Gospels, you read the life story of that person who was born of the Virgin Mary, and he was raised in obscurity, and then he had this great public ministry, and he was taken to the cross. And all of those describe the son of God. It's not that he changed what he was by his resurrection, but it was the son of God in weakness. I mean, think of the images that are so common to us in Western culture. There are three that have come down to us. You all recognize them, even if you weren't brought up in a setting in which you might have seen these things regularly. The one is the Madonna with child. That is the the mother of Jesus, the adult mother of Jesus, holding this infant in her arms with all of her love and her protecting care of an adult mother for a weak child. That's the first image. The second one that is more common than any is the crucifix. You know, a man hanging limply on a cross, dying in the agony of death and powerless to overcome those who put him there. That was the son of God in weakness. And the last one may not be as common, but you've seen it. It's called the pieta. It's that image of Mary at the foot of the cross when her son has just been taken down from the cross and he's laid across her lap and, and there, his mother is in grief at her dead son. Those three images have formed Western culture in such a way that they remind us of the Son of God in weakness. And I want to tell you, they're all accurate images. They all can be drawn, at least, from the pages of Scripture and the things we know about Jesus. My issue with them, apart from the fact that I'm not personally very fond of images of Jesus... My issue with them is not that they're inaccurate, is that they're not enough. 
If that's all you think about Jesus, you don't realize that's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about the one who was declared to be the Son of God in power. It wasn't just his teachings that arose in their hearts. It wasn't just that he was so godly that he went immediately to heaven. It means that that life that belongs properly to God, eternal life, that quality of life was restored to the dead corpse of Jesus Christ in such a way that it was at at one and the same time made incorruptible, couldn't die again, and glorified in some way. That quality of life was restored to his physical body, and that is why he was displayed, he was declared, he was designated to be the Son of God in power. And here's the point. If all you have is the Son of God in weakness, if all you had is the limp man hanging on a cross, if that's all you have, then you're not yet a Christian in the New Testament sense. Because only the Son of God in power can save. Only the Messiah, the Son of God, who represented us on the cross, only the the Lord, Son of God, who was able to guide and lead us, only God the Son himself can save and keep you forever. Let's pray. Our gracious God, again, as we come before you, we thank you that you have shown us the Son of God in power. It's our desire that we too might know that power. Power not just to believe, to trust him and to have eternal life, but power to live for you in the midst of this bewildering wilderness of a world in which we find ourselves. That you yourself would guide us as your people through this world in such a way that you would receive honor and glory. We pray that you would do that in our hearts. In Jesus' name.